Hi there, and welcome to the Sanctuary Podcast. Our vision is to find sanctuary in Christ and then to be sanctuary to each other and express sanctuary to this city. And so for us, success is loving well, one person at a time. And if we can help you in any way, please do feel free to reach out, jump onto our website, sanctuarysf.com, and we would love to connect. Anyway, back to the podcast. Well, uh, <laughs> it is my huge privilege to introduce someone you, you probably know, or you feel like you know anyway. Um, and although there are many challenges to being in this strange, weird lockdown world, there are some upsides. One of them is that you have John Altberg come to your little baby church here in San Francisco and give you uh, some of the best teaching that you're going to hear uh, in the world, in my opinion. John, it's a joy to have you. I know you don't know me, so I'm so grateful that you would give us some of your time. Just quick um, mention very personally, I was an atheist at university in England, in Canterbury, and I became a Christian at the end of my first year. And one of the very first books I ever read was The Life You've Always Wanted, which if you've never read it, oh my word, it should be compulsory reading. It's an amazingly helpful book in terms of uh, some of the spiritual disciplines and helping you get into a, a rhythm and a, a way of living that actually agrees with, as it were, the Holy Spirit's heart for you to become more like Jesus. It's a wonderful book. So I could go on, but we all know you, John. We feel like we know you at least. We're so grateful for you giving us some of your time. Thank you, my friend. Uh, over to you. Uh, as I can see, you, you're flying above the Golden Gate Bridge by the looks of <laughs> So yeah. you're obviously in some kind of fantastic penthouse somewhere. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. And um, I want to take a moment to just cheer on the church. The world needs churches. Our country needs churches. God knows San Francisco needs churches, and we need the church today. And uh, as you all might know, uh, I'm married to Nancy, and Nancy heads up uh, a ministry and organization called Transforming the Bay with Christ. And so I get to have a front row seat to watch um, through Nancy and through her team the cheering on of churches and especially the planting of a new church is a noble, heroic, courageous creative, sacrificial endeavor that makes an enormous difference in the spiritual ecosystem of the Bay Area. So I'm so excited for you and so excited for these days and so grateful to get to be a tiny little part of it this morning and want to say on behalf of the church where I serve, um, we're just so excited to think about uh, a new emerging friend and partner and uh, it's worth it. it, it Thank be you, John. Yeah. And Nancy, we're so, so grateful for your kindness. Yeah. So uh, I thought it would be appropriate today just to talk about Jesus. And I love your story of having been an atheist and coming to faith in Christ. And of course, living in the Bay Area, there are so many people that assume that something has been found out that means that the faith is no longer a live option and that uh, uh, trust in God or the fact that Jesus has made him known is somehow incompatible with science or education or a thoughtful life. And I believe we believe that is deeply not true and we want to spread that message. And so this message is simply about Jesus 
and the impact that he has had on the modern world that most folks don't know. So it's what I want to share with you. I hope that you will forgive me. Mostly, I'm simply going to read it off. So there won't be great eye contact probably through it, but it's not because I don't want to connect with each of you. I just want to make sure that I get the thoughts right. And uh, I'll start with this. I live about 30 minutes south of the city of San Francisco. When you stop and think about it, why is there a city called San Francisco? Well, it's because a long time ago, there was a man named Francis of Assisi, and he inspired so much generosity and so much love that people named cities after him, and he did this because he followed a man named Jesus. I live about 30 minutes north of a city called San Jose. Why is there a San Jose? Well, it's because a man named uh, Jose, Joseph, was the father. His life was changed by a man named Jesus. The capital of our state is a city called Sacramento. Why is there a Sacramento? Well, it's because once there was a meal that was conducted by a man named Jesus to express this remarkable idea that God is a God of suffering and sacrificial love. Before I lived here, I lived in Chicago. Why is there a Chicago? No one knows. Uh, but you cannot look at the map without being reminded of this man, Jesus. The impact of his life is so deep that his birth remains the most widely celebrated birth in the world, and nobody is close at number two. The instrument on which his enemies killed him, a cross, marks more graves and adorns more jewelry, is the single most recognized symbol in the world by far. His movement grows, even though those of us who follow him and try to lead are very often spiritually challenged. And I will share you one story in this regard. Eugene Peterson, the man who wrote the Message Bible, just passed away fairly recently, wrote about growing up in a Christian home, but being picked on as the victim of a second-grade bully uh, who was named Garrison Johns. This is what Eugene wrote. I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you, and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me, but he picked me for his sport. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out I was a Christian and taunted me with Jesus sissy. Most afternoons, I arrived home bruised and humiliated. My mother told me it had always been this way among Christians in the world, and I better get used to it. I was also supposed to pray for him. One day, I was with seven or eight friends when Garrison caught up with us and started jabbing me. And that's when it happened. Something snapped. For a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, pinned his arms with my knees, and he was helpless. At my mercy, it was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson in the snow. Again, this is Eugene Peterson, the man that wrote the Bible. Then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again. More blood. I tried again. Say, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. Now, I hope as you think about the task of evangelism and spreading the name of Jesus, you will do it in a little bit less aggressive fashion. But the reality is that Jesus' influence often endures, not so much because of those of us who follow him, but very often in spite of us. And yet it goes on. 
uh, Yale historian, Yaroslav Pelikan, put it like this. Regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, with some kind of super magnet, to pull out of that history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? It's from his book called Jesus Across the Centuries. Uh, the world that Jesus experienced was much darker than most folks know, and the world that he left was amazingly influenced by him. Most folks in our day don't know about that. And a lot of people, especially folks living in the Bay Area, have no idea, simply as a matter of history, regardless of what you think about Jesus, how much he's impacted the world that we have inherited. So, for the next few moments, uh, instead of equipping us to argue about Jesus with other people, I just want to marvel at him and think about uh, how much has our world been changed by this one life, regardless of whether anybody believes that there is a God or that Jesus was defined. So I just want to walk through with you the impact that historically Jesus has had, partly so that we will come to love him more. Uh, obviously, it would be hard to choose a less likely candidate to change the world. He never held an office, never led an army, never wrote a book. His followers were remarkably unimportant. The New Testament itself records, this is one of my wife's favorite passages, that they were called ordinary unschooled men. And yet 2,000 years later, it is simply impossible to imagine the world apart from his life. For example, he gave the world its most influential movement ever. Try to imagine a world with no church, no Notre Dame, no St. Paul's, no Archbishop of Canterbury, no storefront church in Watts, no house church in China, uh, no sanctuary church beginning now in San Francisco. And then the people, no Peter, no Paul, no Timothy, no Augustine, no Aquinas, no Origen, no Francis of Assisi, no Mother Teresa, Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, John Calvin, John Wesley, John Bunyan. But let's go back for a moment to the beginning, to the idea of the church. In the ancient world, there were nations, there were families, there were tribes, there were ethnic groups, there were guilds, there were tribal religions, there were philosophical schools, but the church was none of these. The ancient world didn't even know what category to put them in. In Rome, they were thought of as a burial society. Paul wrote about the church here, that is in this new community, there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised, no barbarian Scythian. Scythians, by the way, were particularly despised. That's why they get put in there. Slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Uh, I lived for many years in Southern California. There's a ride there called It's a Small World After All. You hear that song over and over. It will drive you crazy eventually. People of every gender, every nationality, every status together. Where, before the church, was there a movement that actively sought to include every human being, regardless of ethnicity, status, wealth, gender, to be loved and transformed. A lot of people don't understand. Not only had there never been a community like this before, there had never been the idea of a community like this before. It was his idea. And that's the idea that you now steward, that you cherish together. 
And it is worth giving the best energies of your life to. And it is intended by him to be the most inclusive community in all the world. And by the way, if you've ever been a part of or heard about the 12 Steps, that's a movement that flowed out of what was called the Oxford Group, which was an attempt to recapture ancient discipleship practices in a more contemporary world without Jesus, no 12 Steps. Now, that's not to say that apart from Jesus, there would never have been an actionable plan of uh, all-inclusive human community. It's just saying, as a matter of historical reality, that vision began with this poverty-stricken, crucified car. Who was this man? He changed how we think about history. In our day, we think about uh, progress. We expect progress. We live in the epicenter of progress for the world. Everything that happens in the Bay Area gets transported to the rest of the world. We do surveys and ask people, do you think life will be better for the next generation? And we're terribly disappointed if the answer is not yes. Nobody in the ancient world would have asked that question. Generally, cultures believe that existence was an endless series of cycles and endless repetitions of ups and downs. They used to talk about the idea of the wheel of fortune. What goes around will come around again. Events were dated by rulers, year number one of the reign of Augustus, and so on. Over time, the power of each Caesar and their grip on on the human imagination faded, but another vision grew more compelling. Until by the sixth century, 500 or so years after Jesus' death, a Scythian monk proposed a new calendar centered not on the founding of Rome, but on the birth of Jesus. In other words, the creation of the calendar was not just a chronological convenience, it was a claim. It was a claim that life is not a random cycle, but has a meaning. It had a beginning and is leading somewhere, and that its critical event is the life of this Jewish carpenter. Jesus lived and died, and Caesar never heard a hint of his existence. But Jesus was called, still in the first century, by his disciple John, the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And we'll often think of that, if we think about it at all, as just a poetic phrase, something out of the Hallelujah Chorus. But it wasn't. Again, it was an idea. John is saying, take all the kings all the power brokers, all the CEOs, all the heads of startups, put them all in a group. Jesus is king over them. He's not just a king. He's not even the greatest king. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Now, you've got to realize in the first century, while he only had a small number of followers, a few thousand people, such a claim was laughable. If you were around then, and you had to bet on whose influence would last longer, Jesus or the Roman Empire, nobody would have put their money on this carpenter and his motley crew. And yet today, 2,000 years later, we still name our children Peter, Paul, and Mary, and we give our dogs names like Caesar and Nero. 2,000 years after his birth, every time any human being anywhere on the planet looks at the date, we are reminded every day that Jesus has become the hinge of history, that Nero died 
in the year of our Lord 68, that Napoleon died in the year of our Lord 1821, that Joseph Stalin died in the year of our Lord 1953. Now maybe John was wrong. Maybe Jesus is not Lord of Lords and King of Kings. But how strange that now every ruler who ever reigned, every nation that rises and falls, every corporation that gets birthed into existence and then goes out must be dated in reference to the life of Jesus. Who is this man? Jesus shaped how we express compassion. And this has a lot to do as a church to how we reflect on these days with the coronavirus. Um, all human beings have a capacity for compassion. But Jesus shaped this in ways that are often not commonly understood. In ancient Greece and Rome, it was generally the beautiful, the noble, the wealthy, and the strong that were admired. The rich might give money for public works, but it was a way to show the rich man's greatness. It was actually called monumentalism, and there have been monographs written on this. The weak and the marginal were not generally valued. First century Roman philosopher named Seneca wrote, we drown children at childbirth when they are weak and abnormal. And that wasn't considered uh, an embarrassment. That's simply how they viewed the human race. In the ancient world, a child could be left to die if it was the wrong gender. Anybody want to guess which gender was the wrong gender? Those were girls. Uh, in the ancient world, as best historians can figure, there were about 1.4 million boys for every 1 million girls. What happened to the 400,000 missing girls? Well, they were left to die. But these followers of Jesus remembered that he said, let the little children come to me. And by the way, there are parts of the world today, if you look at what's been going on in India, for example, where ultrasounds have often been outlawed because uh, little unborn girls are much less likely to be born and raised than little unborn boys. But these followers of Jesus remembered that he said, let the little children come to me, boys and girls. And they actually took in children. They began the practice of godparents who would care for children if the biological parents died. And, of course, in the ancient world, that happened a lot. And then orphanages, which began when communities like uh, monasteries began to be formed, and then people would abandon little children instead of on a dunghill someplace in these spiritual communities. And these changes were so powerful that one book about them by a Norwegian scholar named Baki is simply titled, When Children Became People – the birth of childhood in early Christianity. Widows, who were actually fined through the tax structures by Rome for surviving past their husbands, because they were a drag on the economy, were taken in and cared for by the church, which remembered Jesus saying to his friend John, uh, behold your mother, when he looked at his mom Mary. This is very interesting as we think about the coronavirus in the first three centuries of the church, there were two major epidemics that destroyed up to a third of entire populations. One ancient writer says, it created such a panic in the general population that at the first onset of the disease, people pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treated unburied corpses as dirt 
hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagious of the fatal disease. Some writer named Dionysius, uh, a sociologist named Raymond Stark, writes about this in a book called The Rise of Christianity. But people in this strange little community called the church would bring in sick people that they did not know and to whom they were not related and care for them at the risk of their own health because this Jesus they followed cared for lepers and the blind and the deaf and the lame. And Sartre talks about in two of these enormous epidemics, most likely involving smallpox, one I think about 160 AD, and then another one about 250 AD, when they wiped out up to a fourth or a third of entire cities. Think about that happening here. Those were times when the church grew exponentially because when everybody else was casting people out, the church was taking in people they did not even know to whom they were not even related at great risk. In the fourth century, what was essentially the first hospital was begun by a follower of Jesus named Benedict. By the sixth century, monasteries would commonly have hospitals attached to them because of Jesus. Now, over time, this idea that we ought to have compassion on all who are weak, not just the rich and the beautiful, not just to show monuments to our wealth, began to take root. At the Geneva Convention, an organization was begun to alleviate human suffering and it chose as its symbol a large cross on its flag known as the Red Cross. That's why it's a Red Cross. So when you hear of groups like the Salvation Army or World Vision or the YMCA or Goodwill or Habitat for Humanity or Food for the Hungry, when you go to a hospital and has, it has a name like Good Shepherd or Good Samaritan, or St. Anthony's. You see the touch of Jesus in our world, largely unrecognized in our day. The autistic or the Down syndrome or the disabled or the mentally ill or the broken, these were generally viewed by our ancestors as burdens to be discarded. To see them instead as bearers of divine glory who can teach and ennoble us, this is what Jesus saw. Now, this is not to say that there would be no compassion in the world without Christianity. Very much not the case. And God knows how often those of us in the church far so fall, uh, fall so far short, often far short of those outside the church. But uh, one scholar named Mark Nelson puts it like this. If you ask, what is Jesus' influence on medicine and compassion? I would suggest that wherever you have an institution of self-giving for the lowly, schools, hospitals, hospices, orphanages for those who will never repay, this probably has its roots in the movement of Jesus. And I think that you all will know about this, I think particularly in the Bay Area, where so many people assume the movement of Jesus is meaningless, if it is not rooted in an expression of self-giving love, of concern for servanthood and compassion and reaching out to people and uh, remembering the forgotten, the gospel is simply not going to commend itself where we live. The Jesus movement shaped education in ways people often don't think. We're in a place where everybody wants to be the smartest person in the world, or at least in the room, and we love education. People have always learned, loved to learn. 
But in the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world in particular, formal education was generally reserved for children of wealthy family, generally male children. But the church remembered they followed a man who taught everybody and who commanded them to teach all peoples and was a part of this odd little tribe, Israel, that taught that every human being was made in God's image and ought to be able to learn. So they began to teach men and women, slave and free. About the fourth century, some of Jesus' followers entered monastic communities. And for many centuries, those were the only institutions of Europe uh, that preserved not just biblical studies, but the great pagan classical texts. And then churches began to build schools. And then the church began universities, University of Paris around the 12th century, and then Oxford and Cambridge. The motto of Oxford University to our day is, the Lord is my light. And then Harvard, and then Yale, 92% of all the colleges and universities founded in the U.S. before the Civil War were founded in his name. With the Reformation came the idea that every individual ought to be able to read the Bible, God's word for themselves. And that ignited in turn the dream for universal literacy. See, that dream came from someplace. Martin Luther, the reformer, said he would write a book about parents who neglect the education of his children. This is a direct quote. This is what Luther wrote. He said, I shall deliberately, I shall really go after the shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are not parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts devouring their own young who do not educate their children. Luther had a hard time expressing his emotions sometimes. You think in our day um, how it's driving parents crazy because the task of educating little children, which everybody's having to do at home now, is so rigorous. Again, this is largely unknown. In America, the first law to require public funding for mass education it was known as the Old Deluder Satan Act because people were convinced that it was the evil one who wanted to keep children ignorant. And so they believed that it was uh, uh, ennobling for the common good for followers of Jesus to actually pay taxes to be concerned about the education of everybody, not just my little tribe. That's an idea that the church would do well to spread in our day. Uh, Alfred North Whitehead, one of the dominant thinkers of the 20th century, was asked what makes it possible, what made it possible for science to emerge? Really fascinating. This is Whitehead's response. It was, he said, the medieval insistence on the rationality of God. It was the notion that uh, uh, nature, the world, is creation, and it was the creation of a rational, orderly God, and therefore, uh, it's worth empirical, orderly study of that creation. Whitehead said that's what made the emergence of science possible. The great explosion of technology in the Middle Ages was in monastic communities. Mechanical clocks were invented because monks needed to know when to pray. We first hear about eyeglasses in a sermon because monks needed to pour over the texts. Dom Perignon was actually the name of a Benedictine monk who contributed to the production of champagne because there were not yet Baptists to tell him it was a sin to drink it. The alphabet of the Slavs is called Cyrillic. They had no written alphabet, so a missionary named Cyril created one for them so that they would be able to read the Bible. 
In nation after nation, Christian missionaries found languages that had not been committed to writing, and then acts of stupendous heroism, they set about to that task. In very many cases, the first effort at the scientific study of languages was from Christian missionaries. They composed the first dictionaries, compiled the first grammars, developed the first alphabets, the first important proper name written in more languages than any other name was the name Jesus. The Gospels have been translated into well more than 2,200 languages. No other book is translated into one-fifth as many as this book. Who is this man? The Jesus movement revolutionized art. Without Jesus, there's no Dante, no Divine Comedy, uh, no Martin Luther King, whose German Bible shaped German, no King James Bible, which shaped modern English, no Johannes Bach, who signed all of his works to the glory of God, no Hallelujah Chorus, no Mozart Requiem, no Gregorian Chants. Modern music notation was an invention of the medieval church so that worship, what you all were doing this morning online, could be spread from place to place. That's where we get musical notes. Imagine no Sistine Chapel, no Da Vinci's Last Supper, no Paeta, no Justin Bieber Christmas ap, uh, album. There has been no transcendent vision of reality that has gripped the artistic imagination like the vision of Jesus. And as a church, as you think about the importance of the arts, of music, and of the visual arts, and the beauty, man, devote yourselves to making that really compelling for him. The Jesus movement changed political theory. Jesus said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, this is one of the most influential political statements in history. Up until that moment, it was generally just assumed that the state had the franchise on religion. A religion was what part of holds tribes, countries, empires together. But from Jesus, then to Augustine, to Martin Luther, to John Locke, developed this notion of limited government, that even kings will answer to a higher power, that the state should not run religion or vice versa. That's so why the idea of the separation of church and state simply would not have been contemplated uh, in the ancient world. They were just both part of ruling structure. As a matter of fact, uh, the church generally follows Jesus a lot worse when it has political power than when it does not have political power. And I think one of the great barriers to the spread of the message and person of Jesus in our country this day tends to be when the church, either on the lot and the left, that's often happened in the mainline world, or on the right, that's often happened in the evangelical world, get co-opted by a partisan political movement and how desperately the Bay Area needs to hear the gospel, the message, the person of Jesus in a way that transcends partisan politics. And I hope you devote yourselves to that. Jesus changed how we think about human rights and dignity. In our country, we have this founding document that says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, have been endowed by their creator with certain rights. Now that's an idea. Where does that come from? Because it was not self-evident to Attila the Hun. wasn't self-evident to Caesar. You often hear people in our day say things like, I believe in a God of love. 
Well, nobody in the ancient world said, I love Zeus or I love Baal. Where did that idea come from? Well, it came from a little nation of Israel through the person of Jesus to the rest of the world, a new way of thinking about God and love. That God is like a father who is racked by tormented love for his most wayward, rebellious child. And now this idea that every human being is loved by God has serious implications. So there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, because he loves us. Thomas Cahill writes, this is the first expression of egalitarianism in human history. Now, very often, supposed Christian individuals and nations violate this, but the power of Jesus' teaching has a subversive way of refusing to stay submerged. And that's why reform movements like abolition, were overwhelmingly led by Christian. Jesus uniquely taught love of enemies. There is an idea that you ought to love your enemy. That is not a normal uh, human idea historically. What was admired in the ancient world was helping your friends and harming your enemies. That's actually a monograph about ancient Rome. Help your friends hurt your enemies. Conan the Barbarian, if you've ever seen that movie, was actually paraphrasing Genghis Khan when he gave his famous answer to the question, what is best in life? To crush your enemies, see them driven before you, hear the lamentations of their women. But there was once a man who said, turn the other cheek. Go with him a second miles. Love your enemy. Bless those that persecute you. And those were not just words. As he died, he said about those who were executing him, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And his followers remembered this. We're told by one ancient writer, Tacitus, that when they were persecuted, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were torn by dogs and perished, or nailed to the cross, or doomed to the flames. Nero would take followers of Jesus, cover them with pitch to use them as human torches to light gladiator games. This went on and off for three centuries, and the response was not to dream of revenge, or begin an alternative political party, or start an armed revolt, but to love and pray for Nero. The unique association of Jesus with love of enemies is so strong that the historian Hannah Arndt from Princeton wrote, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. Who is this man? He is the hinge of history. He is the hope of the oppressed. He is the inspiration of the despairing. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the greatest teacher who ever taught. He is the greatest mind that ever thought. He is the greatest gift that is ever given. He has launched the greatest movie movement ever known. And now you serve him. So go and give it. Give him the best you have. And God bless you as you do it.